Welcome to Reservation Redemption, the podcast based off the documentary with the same title. I'm your host, Brenda Fisher, a descendant of the Yakima tribe of Washington State. Our guest today on Reservation Redemption is Tresseg, Shelley Boyd, from the Colville tribe and the Sinek tribe. Shelley is an activist for Native rights and a cultural leader. I had the honor of meeting Shelley and speaking to her during recordings for our documentary of the same name, of course, Reservation Redemption. And just to give you a little sneak peek of our documentary and a fabulous conversation we had, um, Shelly is really knowledgeable and um, really happy that she is now in my universe. So Shelly, I am dying to know more about you. Chief has told me a lot, but I would love to hear in your words to explain who you are and what you do. So, um, well, first, why So, um, my name is uh, Shelly Boyd. My my squeeze or my uh, is a preset, and. I guess it, right now I work for uh, the Colville Confederated Tribes and Ike's Confederacy in a um, um, ongoing work of title interests, title uh, rights and interests of Snipes people in Canada, in which we were declared extinct in 1956. And of course, we still exist. I still exist. My history is one. Um, through education, I, I am formally educated as a school counselor, and then later on, I was a founding member of the Inchland Language and Culture Association, and worked towards revitalizing language within our community. So I know you were just talking about um, the Supreme Court case um, to try to reinstate the tribe that they said was extinct. Um, can you tell us more about that? Well, just that, and we were declared extinct um, in Canada in 1956, and mm -hmm. I think it's more just a reflection of of treatment of Indigenous people historically. We have all kinds of colon, colon, colonization that's happened and colonial acts that have been put on Indigenous people, and that was just one of them. And it seems that the common thread is always resource extraction, which was mm -hmm. the same for us. Right. So in your experience, have you noticed a correlation between children that embrace their culture and are or are taught their culture, um, including, you know, being part of the powwows, the dancing, everything that kind of goes into embracing um, kids as Native Americans? Yeah, I think culture is a definitely, I think that the healthiest thing about human beings is self-knowledge and understanding who you are. As indigenous people, uh, I, one of the blessings, the really powerful blessings that we have is that we understand exactly where we come from, which at least puts us on the road to understanding who we are. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what perspective that you come from, it always boils down to understanding who you are and why you are. And once people understand, young people understand who they are and why they are, it gives them a freedom of choice or an understanding of the amount of choices that they have. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like 
there is also a correlation between those who don't grow up in their culture or don't embrace their culture to the kids that are making bad decisions and ending up incarcerated. Well, I think that there is a correlation between people who don't understand themselves and making choices that they don't understand. Right. And so if you, if you, I think one of the things that are hard for indigenous people is that they walk into worlds. I, that mm -hmm. sounds like such a cliche, but it's true. I was introduced to this um, concept called colonial gaze, which talked about um, non-indigenous people kind of glazing over or gazing over indigenous issues. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we have indigenous gaze because most of us live in our communities. There is a strong understanding that when you are indigenous, that you not just are indigenous, but that you have a responsibility. And so the difficult piece is when you can't align those things, when you're separated from um, who you are, but at the same time, you understand that you have a responsibility in the world that's larger than you. And so young people who are raised in their culture, I mean, there's many blessings. I think that there's a lot of integrity in indigenous mm -hmm. culture. There's a lot of strength in uh, how my mother would say, we're not here because we suffered. We're here because we're very strong people. But when you know you're indigenous and yet you're missing that connection to who you are, it feels like there's a piece of you missing. And I think that that's just a micro, a micro view at what, when people get into trouble or get into places or situations that they're not happy with, it comes from a, a lack of understanding of their, their, their place in the world. And I don't mean like a place this way. I mean, everyone has a place. And if you don't feel like you have a place, you're, that's where you become lost. I think emotionally, spiritually, physically sometimes. And I've really noticed just from my experience, watching whole families that dance together, go to powwows together, you know, someone does something, they all work together, even if it's, you know, mom goes to support and everybody else dances, or, you know, maybe dad is the support and everyone else dances. Um, I think that just from my experience watching that, it just, the families seem happier and more connected when they do that, when they participate in cultural things um, as a family. And I think it makes the family unit stronger. Well, I think that that is definitely something that no matter what you do, <clears throat> doing things with your family is a really um, important thing. It gives you stability in life. Right. But I think understanding the spiritual connection um, to who you are. I worked in language revitalization because I think language is our medicine. Mm -hmm. I think that language tells you so much about who you are and why you are and how you perceive the world. And I think about individuals who just know English, mm -hmm. for instance, because English is what we would consider a trader language or a commerce language. Mm -hmm. And that's not the official term, but um, it it's what it, what it means is it's not a pure language. It doesn't it doesn't talk about things that are built upon each other. If mm -hmm. this makes sense, it talks yeah. it it mixes a whole bunch of different languages together, and so you don't have an understanding of of what things mean or where they come from. Where 
in our language, I always like the word um, nafit, which means to, um, we would translate it into English as swimming underwater. Mm -hmm. But nash is something that you only consider when you're talking about a living entity. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you'll say oof. When it's an object, it's an oof. And like a book, you know, or a cup, you know, it's year um, cocaine or year cocaine or whatever, a bowl in a bowl. But when you're talking about humans, you know, right. it'd be a chinich nash, chinich, you know, a, a girl and a girl or a boy and a boy or whatever. Mm -hmm. But nash it. So when you really translate that in the language, it means you're swimming with water. You're not swimming in water. And it's a real subtle uh, shift on what perspective is uh, or human perspective. And so if you have a perspective that it gives you clues all the way through, like every time you have not, you're looking at things differently than you would when you're saying, oh, Okay. I don't know if that makes sense, but to kind of really make this shorter, I, I heard this, um, someone really explained it really well to me, and they said, if you speak only English, and or if you only speak even trader languages or mm -hmm. commerce languages, and uh, in uh, indigenous languages are land-based languages, but you can be in the most beautiful environment, top of a mountain, in a glass box and everything is provided for you, but you're not gonna smell what's happening. You're not gonna hear what's happening. You're not gonna touch what's happening. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're disconnected from it. And that's how language is too. Interesting. So we both know Chief Rice and that's how we came together and started communicating. Tell me about how you met him and what your experience has been like. So I met him when my nephew, who was 19 at the, uh, at the time, uh, got into trouble. He had never, my nephew had never been in any trouble. Uh, not to say he hadn't been in any trouble, he had been, but he was a really good kid. He got good grades, he was super honest. You know, if you wanted to ask a group of kids what happened, you know, at the roller skating rink, it would be my nephew that would say, well, this is what happened. Right. But he just had a high level of integrity of, of honesty. Anyway, um, he went out and he got drunk, really drunk when he was 19. And him and his buddy, for whatever reason, decided that they were going to hold up a 7-Eleven with a squirt gun. Oh. And they were charged uh, with armed robbery because, you know, it appears with a, a gun and my nephew was given three years in Walla Walla State Penitentiary and the advice that we had given our nephew my mom's grandson my sister's son was just be honest tell the truth you know don't plead innocent to something that you're guilty of don't you know um, do that and I think that um, there's a real line of integrity in there, but the reality is my nephew was 19 years old. He was not a hardened criminal. He, this was a, he got put into a very scary situation and not that my nephew is, um, 
is weak or anything mm -hmm. like that, but prison is not, it's not um, a safe place. Right. And what my nephew said was, had it not been for chief and, and other elders, but he specifically would gravitate towards chief, that he wouldn't have survived. Yeah. And to the point where, what's interesting about it to me, because uh, um, I didn't, I didn't know Chief very well at that time, but I had respect for him because he would help with different things. But, and when I say help with different things, fundraisers or whatever, Chief is an incredible artist. Uh, anyway, um, when years later, like uh, probably 15 years later, uh, Chief had sent he had read in our tribal newspaper because mm -hmm. he is the same band as I am, Sinai's, and he's from the same confederation, the Caldwell Confederated Tribes. But he had read about the salmon ceremony that we were doing, and he just sent a big box of beaded items for the giveaway because part of the cultural protocol is to give things away. And he did that with no, like, anything. It was just like we had put a call out in the paper and he just came through with things to help pray for the salmon and the return of the salmon. And then later on, I got to talk to him. I can't remember through telephone. I got his number somehow or had him call because I wanted to thank him, mm -hmm. not only for contributing to the giveaway, but also helping my nephew. Right. And the amount of, of young men that Chief has helped throughout the days he couldn't even remember my nephew. And it was funny is finally how he remembered him was because that we're from Inchalim. Mm -hmm. And he said, wait, 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 he's from Inchalim. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, oh yeah, Inchalim. We called him Inchalim. But the reality was, is that that's how it started like a friendship and mm -hmm. a, and a dialogue between chief and I. And Chief went forward and he'd help whenever we had giveaways and stuff. And he didn't do it for money. He was just like, you'll see posters that we have for the salmon ceremony of different chiefs. Mm -hmm. And he's just done those because it's a beautiful thing to do. And his artwork is so beautiful that it looks uh, like it, it will look like pencil drawings or mm -hmm. and, it, and their paintings. I mean, it's incredibly de detailed. And so he puts a lot of time and effort and most of all, I think, love into these things. But eventually we got to know each other better, I mean, through conversations. And what I thought was really interesting is, is someone who inspired me with uh, my life, but with language also, is a man named Charlie Quintasket. Mm -hmm. And Chief had talked about Charlie Quintasket. He had had a friendship with Charlie, and Charlie's actually someone... It's ironic. I didn't plan on wearing this this um, sweatshirt today, but um, Charlie Quintasket actually, if there was one person to say started this case, it would be Charlie Quintasket. By uh, he was just a very rooted and strong cultural figure, a fluent speaker, and someone that went into offices in Victoria, B.C. in the '80s and said, "Why don't we have a reserve in Canada?" Our traditional territory lies mostly in Canada. And it, anyway, uh, last year on, uh, in May, last May, we won at the Supreme Court of Canada, our existence basically. Wow. So 
through conversations that Chief and I would have, he would talk about this relationship with um, Charlie and how he just helped people or how he felt like that was something he could do. He felt like, you know, what his crime was was so horrendous that there was never going to be anything that made it okay. Mm -hmm. The only thing he could do was try to do the best that he could with his life. And I remember once I asked him, you know, Chief, why didn't you give up? And he goes, you know, I almost did. When I was first in prison, Mm -hmm. he said, I was an asshole. And he said he had an elder in prison say to him once, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? And Chief said that he said, what do you mean, what am I going to be? I'm a convict. I'm a lifer. There's nothing. The only thing that's ever going to happen for me is these four walls. Mm -hmm. This is what I am. And the elder said, you know, well, no, actually, you have a choice. Even in here, you have a choice on who you're going to be and what you're going to do. And you need to decide that. And Chief said that took a while for that to sink in for him. You know, and and later on, he became um, acquainted with with an elder that we all love and respect, Francis Kaluuya. But he said that that this beginning phase of just shifting his thought like, okay, I'm making a choice about who I am. And then my niece, uh, her name was uh, Tanya Phillips. Her name is Tanya Phillips, but she died. about 13 years ago. I cannot believe that already. And she had a rare form of cancer. And one of the, the, another thing that I found out, you know, in my conversations with Chief, because this rare form of cancer also hit other young indigenous people who lived in the same area. And so um, Seth Brooks was someone that had helped my niece Tanya a lot because they were both on this cancer journey. Mm-hmm. And um, and Chief had helped raise money for Seth, too, because it's incredibly expensive. Even, oh, yeah. you know, you have Indian Health Services, whatever you have, the trips to the children's hospital mm-hmm. for chemo, years, months, it is so, it's hard. And to provide a support system for kids is right. difficult. And we talked about that, and there's other things that Chief has done because, I mean, I had asked him because he was so incredibly generous with, with us, and mm-hmm. we have the salmon ceremony every year, and, and he always just does whatever he can do. I ended up being invited to some powwows that they had there, and I went along with Francis Cluia and his family and, and met Chief in person. And What I love about Chief is resilience. I was at a powwow there once, and I sat down um, with, or I didn't sit down, the, the mm-hmm. pastor, the official pastor for the, the prison came and sat by me. And he said, he said, yeah, the inmates are strike or on strike. And I, I'm reluctant to say this on camera because I don't want any anybody's feelings hurt, but the food is terrible. The food is so awful. It is really, really bad. But the inmates for the the powwow, they're so excited because mm-hmm. this is the best food they get. Yep. And they're piling it on your plate. 
because they're so proud of this horrible food. They don't know. Chief doesn't know that this is horrible food, but it's really, really bad food. And that particular year, none of the inmates were eating. And so that meant more food. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the pastor was talking about how they were on hunger strikes because they finally had to stop when the bologna they were eating was green. Oh. And he said that prior to the privatization of prisons, that the Walla Walla used to raise its own garden and they had like a pig farm and it it fed most of their population actually and it helped with the bottom line I mean financially Mm -hmm. everything it it helped but when the prisons got privatized I mean what works best I mean when it's a corporation you take away the things that that eliminate debt and you just put it out there to who's ever going to be the lowest bidder so you can make more money and right. that's what they had done. And that was just an example of, of how they they were working things. Anyway, not to be like, oh, you know, this is a terrible situation. But I, I think about those prisons, those prison powwows and how powerful they were and how how much Chief worked at that. You could see, like, how much effort he put into those powwows. And, right. and that really is medicine and how proud these guys were. If you're, if you see any of the big powwows and you see like the amount of beadwork and the amount of like generations sometimes of, of work that is on people and, and it's beautiful, it's true. But those guys in prison had the most simple outfits, right? They just mm-hmm. really had simple outfits and they were just proud and chiefs, Chief's outfit is actually so, it's a, actually beautiful. He's, his, his regalia is really beautiful. And you can tell he's an artist and mm-hmm. he's been there for years and stuff. But there would be these young guys with just something to dance in. And, and they would align with that and they would be proud of it. And, and they would be encouraged. And, you know, I, I will never right. forget one of the things that Chief told me once. And he said, you can tell coming in the, the guys that are going to not be coming back and the guys who will. And he said, you can tell because the guys who are coming back, they never have family that come. They mm-hmm. never have anyone that's supporting them. There's no one at the powwow. But the guys who, who don't come back are the guys who have family there all the time that make it every you know mm-hmm. chance that they get. That's amazing. And it's very true. It's like when you have support, it makes such a difference. And when Chief and I were growing up, I had very strict parents, family support, all of that. He had none of that. And I feel like, you know, we were, we came from different walks of life, even though we were both native, um, we just had a different family situation completely. And so it was hard watching him go through what he did go through um, and being neglected like he was. Um, so I, my family tried to include him a lot, especially when we were playing Little League Baseball together. Um, we took him to eat with us a lot because his dad just wouldn't show up. And I, you know, I've said this to everybody. I'm like, who just leaves their nine-year-old kid to fend for themselves? And not only was this at after Little League practice or games, 
but it would also be um, on a school night. At 10 o'clock at night, he would be scared and he would call our house and talk to my mom um, because nobody was home. And so she'd stay on the phone with him um, until somebody came home and he would be scared. I mean, what nine-year-old wouldn't be out in the boonies? So um, that was my first real glimpse at you know, what he was going through and the lack of family support that he had um, at that time. And I know now, sometimes your family isn't always blood. Sometimes it's the people that rally around you and stay with you. And I think he really has that support now. I mean, so much just from the, the group that showed up yesterday and then you. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing how many people are coming forward for him. Well, I think that that comes back to, you know, my nephew, even um, he was family for him. Mm-hmm. And I'll remember, I'll never forget, you know, something that my mom said when they sentenced my nephew. And and what she said was, and she, you know, because the judge gives you an opportunity to speak. Mm-hmm. And then later on, she, she said this to my nephew, too. Like, it's not just you going to prison. You're bringing all of us with you. Yeah. And a part of all of us did go to prison with my nephew. And so the fact that Chief could be a family to him, or there was some level of somebody there saying to him, hey, kid, you still have a future. What do you want it to be? You need to make some choices about who you want to be. And the difference was, is this was coming from a guy who from the outside was never going to have a choice. Right. I mean, at that time, there was no hope for Chief to ever, you know, gain any kind of freedom. It was just the reality of, of I mean, this was 20 years ago. There was no hope that Chief was going to be out of prison. And yet he still was taking the time to help these younger guys. My nephew, who he didn't know from Adam to make better choices and to decide about who he was going to be, to bring him into the sweat house, to, you know, bring him onto the drum, to do things. I mean, the the small things that are going to make you feel connected. And we can't, I guess there's a lot of stereotype about sitting at a drum and singing or a lot of stereotype about what it means to dance together or to eat together or to pray together or any of those things. But um, the reality is, is that all of those things create community and they create safety and they create inclusion. And so from from our perspective as a family, here was Chief creating a place Mm -hmm. for my nephew in in a very dangerous place. And he had nothing to gain from it. He was just doing it because it was the right thing to do. And when I asked Chief about that, um, you know, he, he was very much into, you know, once you know, you have no choice. Once you know better, you have no choice. Right. Yeah, and that's an amazing thing. And watching him change from that kid that went into prison to this man who is selfless and just wants to be in service of others and to do what he can to help as many people as he can. Um, You know, I think that's really amazing and I'm proud of him. And, um, you know, one of the things that we all talk about is, you know, 
do we think Chief should be released? And I, that was one thing unanimously that we all agreed on is that, yes, we think he should be released. Yeah, and I think if you go a step further, it's because he has something to offer the community. I think about my husband passed away unexpectedly uh, five years ago, five and a half years ago. And one of the things that I thought about was Chief. Mm -hmm. Not that I was going through the same thing, but in some ways, death is a life sentence. When right. someone you love dies, they're not coming back. Right. But you still have to choose whether or not you're going to live or not. You still have to choose what you're going to do. Chief t did some pieces where he inspired me to continue to live. And I think that of course, because everyone sees a place for Chief, mm -hmm. even right down to his marriage. I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I love his wife, Stacy. She's hardworking, and she is just a level-headed person. But what is really inspiring is that they've been married so long, yeah. and they knew each other before prison. Yes. And the and the thing is, is that they, they've maintained a long, a long relationship that is, they've raised, you know, grandkids that yeah. I, I think are not biologically their grandkids. You know, they've done things that have been like just the right things to do. And if you know Stacy, you yes. know how hard of a worker she is. You know that she's just a very honest person and, and she's going to contribute. Yes. And that's how Chief is too. He's going to contribute. And not only is he going to contribute, I think he, he overgives, not, right. not if there's a thing as overgiving, but, uh, you know, he's not looking, he's not counting beans, I guess. Right. He's just like, what needs to be done? Let's get it done and let's do whatever we need to have happen for right. this ceremony to happen or to fundraise for these people or to help this situation to be better or, you know. We're getting cows, so we have to figure out how to get fences or, you right. know, whatever, from a practical to a helping perspective. He does that work, and that's what people see in him. Right. I often say he's lived a better life inside than a lot of people do on the outside because he's had a long marriage. Most people on the outside don't have, um, and they've had bigger challenges to face and they've stayed together as a team and they've overcome it. Um, you know, them starting a cattle business and him constantly researching to find out about, you know, what's happening in, in cattle world and, you know, what new breeds are there and all of that. And he's so interested in learning, you know, so many things now. And I think a lot of that came from the motivation from having that support from the tribal elders and them teaching him that, hey, you know, you can stay in here and just live what I've heard is the iron house life, or you can go down the, the red road and choose a different path. And I thought all of that culture, all of those teachings, everything that has brought him to where, you know, he is now and has been for the past 25 years um, was amazing. And I think that I agree, he has so much to offer and so much to teach others. And I think he could do so much more good on the outside now. Um, right, well, sure. I think one of the things that he has shown over and over again is that he's also supports his family. I mean, not just emotionally and physically, I mean, not physically, he's not there, but emotionally and spiritually and financially. Mm -hmm. 
though, like he figures out ways, like he invests his money into mm -hmm. cattle or he sells his art. I don't know how many times because I've sold things for him and he's like, yeah. give Stacy really needs this money too. Right. You know, uh, but I think that's the, the thing too, that is really important to, I mean, that, that speaks to his level of integrity. He, he takes care of his family and yeah. he doesn't lean on like I'm in prison. I can't do anything. He takes everything that he can and mm -hmm. he works. He is the most prolific artist and mm -hmm. diligent worker that I know. And I don't know how many times I've sat there and, and he said, yeah, I was beating for 12 hours. And people can say like, oh yeah, that's beautiful or painting, you know, right. but the reality is, is your back pays in that, your neck pays in that, your yeah. eyes pay in that. And it's, it's hard work. It and is. he also, you know, takes care of himself physically. Mm -hmm. And so he's working out, he's trying to do things like live as balanced a life as he can. Right. Within a prison system. Within, yeah, with what he has. So that has been amazing. And I think that we, you know, we're all out here pulling for him and hoping that, um, that he gets this hearing and, um, and that it comes out favorably. And I think we'd all like to meet him at the gates and give him a hug, <laughs> for sure. Well, thanks, Shelly, appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and hit the bell so you're notified when we upload our next episode. Check out our website at reservationredemption.com. And if you have any inquiries or wanna discuss your native journey, send me an email at reservationredemption at untamedriver.com. Please definitely include any stories if you have missing members of your family. We definitely want to help. Follow us on Twitter, Rez Podcast, so that's at R-E-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Facebook, Rez Redemption with R-E-Z Redemption. And an IG, it's just Reservation Redemption. Thanks so much again for listening in, and we hope to uh, have you hanging out with us next time.